Thank you, Joel, and for all those who are watching online, thank you for joining us and making us part of your day. Over the month of December, we're gonna have a wonderful time together. Next week, we have Pastor Sid coming, and in this service, we're gonna have at least two baptisms, maybe even more if somebody contacts us this week. On the 19th, we're gonna have our family service. We're gonna hear from our youth pastors, Conrad and Abby. On the 26th, we're gonna have something special both online and in person. And today, uh, we're taking communion. And so for those of you who are at home, if you don't have your communion ready, by all means, hit the pause video and we'll be right here waiting for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the sermon series on Ezra. Thank you for seven weeks of seeing what took place 2,500 years ago. And today, as we fast forward 500 years to just before the birth of Christ, may we continue to be reminded that there are signs all around us pointing to the Savior. God, we pray that my words would fall down that your words would be lifted up and by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak to every one of us here this morning. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. What were the signs that pointed you to Jesus? When you look back at your faith journey, when you look back at your life and how you came to believe in Jesus, what were the signs that pointed you to him? There's probably as many stories as there are people in this room. And you think about the people in your life who have really stood out and, and made an incredible impact. Maybe they're parents who have really shown you and given patience and love and, and support when it comes to finding out and understanding more about who Jesus is. Maybe you had incredible camp counselors and for a week at camp, that young man, that young woman just poured into your life showing you what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe you came to church and you had significant questions and there was an older person or somebody close to your age who said, let me tell you about how great Jesus is. For some of us, a sign to the Savior might be the answer to prayer. And we kind of look out at God and we go, we think you're out there and we have friends who talk to you, but will you answer this prayer? God, I'm really sick. If you're out there, will you heal me? God, I so long to have a child. Will you answer this prayer? God, if you're real, will I see my family at Christmas? God answers that prayer and you go, maybe he's real. For some of us, it might be a feeling. And you drive out to the mountains and you see these majestic pieces of rock and you think that God has to be so great. You're on the golf course and you look out at the beautiful greens and you think only a God who's in charge of creation could make this. You listen to a beautiful piece of music and you think there's a creator out there who inspires people to write like this. The feelings are on one side of the spectrum. There's the other side of the spectrum as well. And you think, I, I love being mentally engaged. And your friends are talking to you about this idea of a big bang theory or a God who created all things. And we talk about this idea of who created everything that exists. Is there actual morality that we as humanity come up with or is there a divine lawgiver and you're engaged? For some of you in this room and for some of you watching online, you might be thinking, I'm not there yet. And there's something about sitting in my pajamas and checking out a couple different churches online and watching YouTube videos and you think, you know, I might be interested, but I need a little bit more. My significant other is bringing me to church and I'll do that for an hour. I can give him or her an hour a week, but God, show up. If you're real, speak to me. 
And over the month of December, each of our Sundays, as well as Christmas Eve, we're going to be talking about signs to the Savior. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one, you have Bibles in the pew racks in front of you if you didn't bring one along, or if you have a smartphone, you can download the Bible app and open up that and you'll have a Bible with you wherever you might go. Big numbers of the chapter numbers, small numbers of the verse numbers. And while we're looking at verses five to 25, I wanna start off with the first four verses and just spend a minute or two on that. So as you're opening up your Bibles, this is how the Gospel of Luke begins. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, it's a friend of Luke's, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. There's a number of different genres and ideas in the Bible. The Old Testament takes place before the birth of Jesus. If you have any Jewish friends, it's the entirety of their scriptures and called the Tanakh. The New Testament has two different genres, the Gospels, which we'll be looking at today, and then after the Gospels, people call them the letters or the epistles. This takes place after the birth of Jesus. But the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are four biographies telling about the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. The first of these three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are sometimes called synoptic, meaning they're similar. If you read them back to back to back, you'll, you'll read over and over again these healing miracles, how the disciples are chosen, how Jesus feeds 5,000 people in the stilling of the storm. None of these are in the Gospel of John. While certainly an oversimplification, this might help. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew is leaning towards the Jews. The Gospel of Mark is all about discipleship. And the Gospel of Luke, which we'll be looking at over the next few weeks, is written to the Gentiles. Gentiles are people like you and me. A Gentile is anybody who's not a Jew. Back to verse three. Luke says, it seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. These are not some made-up stories. That, we'll get to that in just a moment. These are documented people times and places pointing towards the Savior. It's an investigated account about the man who is God. This is how it begins in verses five to seven. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. The only way a sign to a savior is important is if it's actually true. Are these real people in real times and in real places? So Luke starts off and he says, here's an orderly account and these are real people. We start off with Herod the first, otherwise known as Herod the Great. If you have a smartphone with you, you can look him up on Google. He's a real dude. It's a real time. Herod the Great um, ruled over Judea from about 37 BC to 5 BC. It's a real place. It's in Jerusalem. And so he lays out, here is Herod and here is Zechariah. And they could not be more different. 
Herod uh, the first is known for uh, his great building projects. He, um, there's some interesting parallels here as well between Herod and what we've learned over the last few weeks from the book of Ezra. If you remember Ezra, we talked regularly about King Darius. King Darius is considered one of the greatest kings in the history of the world. And he said, go to the, uh, all you Jews, go to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Herod is considered one of the greatest builders in the history of the world. And so he took this temple that the Jews had built about 400 years earlier, and he made it magnificent. He expanded it in size. He expanded it in height. He expanded it in beauty. It is a beautiful piece of work that still stands to this day over 2,000 years later. Many of the magnificent ruins in modern-day Israel date back to the time of Herod. We see theaters, cities, palaces, fortresses, and other places financed all across the Roman world. And whether you like building or not, this next story I found incredibly fascinating. Before the birth of Christ, Herod built a harbor. And you might think to yourself, oh, that's neat. Like he built some ports and some docks. Good for him. No, no, no. He literally built a harbor. Before the turn of Jesus coming to earth, he invented quick drying cement that set under the water, and then he built them up like Lego blocks to stack up a three-sided harbor for ships to come into. It's absolutely incredible. Herod, Herod the Great is also a tyrant. Some say he's crazy. And he ruthlessly protected his power. How ruthless? He killed his wife. He killed his sons, and he killed other family members that he perceived as a threat to the throne. One historian said, it's better to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son, because the pigs live longer. Not only would he send spies out into the cities to hear what people were saying about him, he himself, the ruler of all of Judea, think like a province of Alberta, would dress down and walk among the people to hear what they were saying about him. If someone spoke poorly, they just disappeared. It's Herod in Matthew 2, verse 16, that realizes that he was outwitted by the Magi and was furious. So he gave order to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity over, um, who were two years old and under. And so you have this political powerhouse, a man with the moniker, the Great. And beside him, you have Zechariah. And you might read this and go, well, Zechariah was obviously a pretty important dude. He must have been like a high priest. He must have held some special social standing. He must have been really highly respected by the people around him. And you would be completely wrong. Zachariah is today's equivalent of a long-serving rural church pastor. The priest from the big city might know who he is, but probably didn't. For most people, you would look at him and go, there is a faithful, godly priest and if you attended his church in the hillside of Judea, you would probably think, what a great priest we have. Where Herod is proud and arrogant, Zechariah is humble and faithful. Both he and his wife come from priestly lines, which was the sign of God's favor. We read again in Luke 1 verse 6. See, they're both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And while we would look at Zechariah and Elizabeth and think, that's a pastor that I'd like to have. I'm not sure the people who did attend his church did think that way. They don't have any children. And in the first century BC, children are a sign of God's blessing, which means if you don't have children, 
It's a sign that God's blessing is not on you. And so people would say horrible things to Elizabeth and people would be wondering, what kind of sin issue does Zachariah have? Maybe the women are all getting well for the uh, water at the well for the day and they gather together and they see Elizabeth and they kind of say, did you hear that the Joneses are having a baby? Obviously they're doing something right. And the amount of peer pressure and harm that Elizabeth would have gone through would have been agonizing. In fact, Jewish law says that if, you, if your wife is unable to provide you with a baby, you have the right to divorce her and go and seek another woman. And this makes Zachariah's faithfulness even more impressive. Zachariah loved his wife, loved God, and is going to be faithful, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and were advanced in years. How many times do you think they prayed for a baby? Hundreds? Is thousands out of the question? And God is silent. Like Abraham and Sarah in the opening pages of Genesis, we have a couple who is faithful to God, past the years of childbearing, and are waiting, hoping God will give them a child. You can probably see where this is going. Verses 8 to 10. Now while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. I don't want to get into too much detail here, but here's what the temple looked like 2,000 years ago. Now it's uh, in ruins, but uh, it looks pretty nice. The bottom of the picture, you can see a door. Everybody enters into this door and there's a large courtyard for people to spend time, to hang out, potentially to worship, but mostly just an extended foyer and a time of mingling. Then you can see steps that lead up to an inner door. Between that inner door and the larger building is the inner courtyard. This is where the sacrifices would be made for um, the, the sins of the people and for uh, burnt offerings and grain offerings and things besides. The building is the temple. And every year, uh, one, every year there'd be 24 divisions of priests. These 24 divisions of priests would each serve at the temple two weeks of the year. And it was Zachariah's turn to serve. The first century historian Josephus estimates that there's about uh, 20,000 priests in Israel at this time. Only 2,000 per year get to go, uh, only 200 per year get to go into the temple. That's 1%. Of all the priests in all of Israel, significantly less than half of them ever get to enter the temple, ever get to serve in any way, shape, or form inside the temple. Zechariah is chosen by lot. This is his Super Bowl. This is his moment. And so him and three other priests enter into the temple. And they're working away. He gets to do the incense. The others are working on the candles or bringing the bread of the sacrifice. They're taking away the ashes. And as he pours incense uh, in the temple, he gets to pray for the nation of Israel. His prayer probably went something like this. Oh God, father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I pray that you would send a savior to Israel a savior who will rescue us from tyranny, a savior who will be the Messiah, a savior who will help us go where you want to take us next. And then I almost wonder if he looked around 
and realized all my three friends have left and thought to himself, this is my one chance. This is my one opportunity and said, God, while I'm inside the temple, I also pray that you would give me and my wife, Elizabeth, a child. And he opened his eyes and bam, there stands an angel. And this is what that angel says. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been answered and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now I think when we pray, we hope God is going to answer our prayers. We don't expect that we'll open our eyes and bam, an angel stand right in front of us. Next week, Pastor Sid is gonna be here and he's gonna talk to us about the same angel, Gabriel, coming to a young teenager named Mary to say, you will be the mother of God. In a couple weeks, we're going to hear about a whole host of angels showing up to the shepherds. But while seeing an angel certainly isn't expected, the angel comes with incredible favor of Zachariah's request. Not only will him and Mary, pardon me, him and Elizabeth finally have a child, but their child will be the one who points to the coming savior. In the midst of the terror that Herod is wreaking across the land, the savior is about to be born. We heard the Advent reading at the beginning of the service from Selmer, and part of John chapter one says this, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe in him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The people of Israel are waiting, yearning, hoping, God, give us a sign. From the end of the Old Testament, the last book is Malachi, to the beginning of Matthew chapter one is 400 years. 400 years of silence, 400 years of hoping, 400 years of wanting, 400 years of thinking, God, are you still there? God, are you going to send a savior? God, are you going to send a Messiah? God, we've gone through Babylon and Persia and now Romans are taking over. What is taking place? What are you going to do? What's gonna happen? The last two verses of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter four, five and six say this, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. It's John the Baptist who comes in the spirit of Elijah. And how great is John the Baptist? This is what Jesus himself says about John in Matthew 11. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before you who will prepare your way before you. And in verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. 
yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John is like the prophet Samuel, whose parents, even before he was born, dedicated him to service of the Lord. John is like the great prophet Jeremiah, who before he was even born, before he was in his mother's womb, would be told was filled with the Holy Spirit. And John is not just like the greatest prophet Elijah, he comes in the very spirit of Elijah to point people towards God. Just like Elijah was wrestling through Ahab and Jezebel and the killing of Jews, so John as well is wrestling with the idea of Herod the Great and his killing of all the Jews. Elijah was given the power to preach and point the remnant of Israel towards the people of God. John the Baptist is so popular and preaches such a powerful message that people are coming out of Jerusalem, going to the wilderness to hear this man proclaim the good news. I am the voice of the one in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist is saying, do you see the signs to the Savior? In the midst of darkness, he came to bear witness about the light. And John's whole purpose was to point people to Jesus. He is that bright light of a marquee saying that, behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Jesus is the one you're looking for. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior of the world. I must become less so that Jesus might become more. The Savior, the Messiah is coming. Jesus is the perfect prophet. He's not just God's word to God's people. He is God himself coming among his people. Jesus is the perfect priest who makes the ultimate sacrifice that all people might come to God. Jesus is the perfect king who brings the rule and authority of God to all of God's people. As far as signs go, this is about as good as it's gonna get. Verses 18 to 20. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until that day that these things take place because you did not believe in my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Let's pause and just go over that scene for a moment. Here is Zechariah, a faithful priest, so outstanding in character that the second verse of our passage today said that him and his wife Elizabeth were so righteous before God that they walked blamelessly in all the commands and statutes of the Lord. And he prays at that altar of incense and he opens his eyes and an angel is standing right before him. And we don't know what this angel looks like. We don't know if the angel is kind of shining a little bit. We don't know if the angel has wings. We don't know if the angel is six feet tall or 10 feet tall. We don't know if the angel's showing up in jeans and a polo shirt. We don't know what he looks like. But he gives Zachariah this incredible news. And Zachariah looks at him and says, can I get a sign? Can I get proof that this is actually going to happen? And then the original Greek, it actually says, Gabriel looks at him and goes, listen here, you doofus. Doesn't actually say that. Gabriel says, look at me. I am an angel who stands in the presence of God. What greater sign do you need? But I'll give you a sign and my sign will be a rebuke. You will not speak again until your son is born. But this isn't an unusual request. In the course of biblical narrative, we see over and over and over again people saying, God, give me a sign. 
There's great parallels between Zachariah and Abraham, two men faithful to God, wives past childbearing years, and God says they will have a child. And when Abraham asks for a sign, God says, look up at the heavens, count the stars. If indeed you can count them, that will be your offspring. Later on in the book of Judges, a man by the name of Gideon asks for a sign and God gives him a sign. Then Gideon goes, "Mm, that sign was probably too easy. Can you make it more difficult? God gives him a second sign. Throughout the Old Testament, we see sign after sign after sign. But God doesn't like that uh, that Zachariah asked. And here's what I think it means. Wherever we are in our spiritual journey, we're in danger of hardness of heart. We know Zechariah is a dedicated priest. We know him and Elizabeth are righteous before God. We know Zechariah is faithful in service, but take another look at verse 20. Behold, you will be silent, unable to speak. Why? Because you did not believe my words. Wherever we are in our spiritual journey, we're in danger of hardness of heart. Maybe you're here this morning watching online and you might be thinking, I'm not sure I believe. And that's okay. But what's gonna put you over the top? What are you waiting for? What is the sign that you need? What is the word that you need? What is the person in your life that you need for you to finally go, okay, I believe. And we as a church, we're not saying that that's always easy. We recognize that there's doubts and that's real. But we're asking you to put your own line in the sand and go, what is it preventing you from believing that there is a sign to the Savior? Luke wants to give an orderly account. He says, here are the, is the time. Here are the people. Here are the places that's taking place. Allow me to tell you everything that's happening and point you, giving you a sign to that Savior. So I encourage you, don't let the moment pass. Maybe you need to fill out a connecting card. Maybe you need to talk to somebody in the foyer. What's preventing you and holding you back? Maybe you're a little bit like Zachariah. Maybe you're a lot like Zachariah. Maybe you're here this morning and you're praying, God, if you're out there, can you give me a child? If you're out there, can you please answer the prayer that me and my significant other have been praying over and over hundreds, maybe thousands of times? I want a child at Christmas time. Maybe you're praying, you're saying, God, if you're out there, if you're real, because I think you are, why do I not have a job? Why am I so lonely? Why do I have no plans for Christmas and people are celebrating and it's the worst time of the year? but God is continually giving us signs to the Savior. God is continuing to pursue you, come after you and draw you back to yourself. And God is saying, will you come to me? And will you recognize that I am pointing you to a Savior? If you have your communion with you, I invite you to open it up. Because it's not just in the Gospel of Luke that God is pointing and giving signs to the Savior. We see it all throughout the Scriptures going back to Abraham and Sarah for a third time this morning. God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, you will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. 
But Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that blessing and not only is a blessing, but is salvation to all the nations of the world. You flip the book over and you go from Genesis to Exodus and you read this incredible story, this account of this group of people, this Israelites, at least a million strong by this point, who are led in, who are in captivity in Egypt. And God raises up a man by the name of Moses and uses Moses to take people out of Egypt. It's a story that the Jewish community continues to talk about to this day but it's a sign for us as followers of Jesus to recognize it's pointing towards Jesus who doesn't just rescue us out of a captivity from a nation, but rescues us out of captivity from sin and death. Flip over a couple more books and you get to the kings and you see these great kings like David and Solomon, like Hezekiah and Josiah. And as good as they are, you recognize they fall short. But Jesus himself comes as the perfect king, the king of kings who is in control of all who are in control. And eventually you get to the prophets. And the prophets bring the word of God, but Jesus isn't just bringing you the word of God. He is the word of God. And you get to the gospels and yeah, they start off with these great signs to the savior, but it's not just that. Throughout the whole course of the gospel, we see sign after sign after sign. He's the one who casts out demons. He's the one who heals the sick. He is the one who raises the dead from the grave. And at the end of each of the four gospels, we get to this part where these 12 Jewish men are hanging out with Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah. And they're hanging out with him on one of the most important days of the Jewish calendar, Passover, the day that they remember their escape from Egypt. And back in the book of Exodus, that 10th plague that's about to come over all the people of Egypt, God says to Moses, tell the Israelites to take a spotless lamb, to sacrifice it, to take its blood and to put it on the door frames of your homes. And Jesus Christ is saying, I am the fulfillment of that. On this day, on this Passover, I am the spotless lamb. And this body that you, the spread that you are about to break symbolizes my body, which will be broken for you. The wine that you are about to drink symbolizes my blood, which is shed for you. Let's partake together. Heavenly Father, throughout all of Scripture, there are signs to the Savior. Over the next few weeks, certainly we'll be looking at the book of Luke, but it's throughout all the Old Testament, it's throughout the New Testament, it's throughout all of creation, as Romans 1 tells us, pointing to you, pointing to your Son, pointing to Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the one who came to save the world. And God, we might be like Zachariah and some of us in this room, some of us watching online might have a hardness of heart. God, we pray that you would soften our hearts, that we would see the beauty, the majesty, and ultimately the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, the savior of the world. And so God, soften our hearts. And in this season of anticipation, may we be reminded like we do the first Sunday of every month that Jesus Christ has come and Jesus Christ, your son, is coming back. 
We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.